Okay, um, I thought that we would follow on a little bit from where Chris and I talked last time um, when we talked about <clears throat> where does Jesus fit and our feeling of the necessity of that in the context of how we are journeying and needing to re- reassess and realign what are important elements but, uh, but sometimes uh, fit a little bit differently into the equation. So um, I wanted to move on to talk a little bit about um, who or what is God um, and depending whether we've got time later on or maybe next week Chris will <coughs> I'll throw her two penneth into the, into the mix which always makes it interesting because um, I've said to you before I'm not afraid to say we see some things differently and I think it's good for you to get the the two perspectives, because it's not a right or wrong exercise. It's a it's a journey of learning and um, and thinking together. Uh, it might seem that the question in a place like this, among people like us, you know, who who is God, would be a redundant question. Why why would you have to ask that question? Surely, of all the questions that you would want to ask, who is God wouldn't be one of them, because you should have that button down. Um, but I think that's part of the problem with the process and development of Christianity through, certainly through the last 2,000 years, is whenever we have come to the place that we've stopped asking that question, um, tends to be the problem that then we actually begin to define and create God in the image that we would like him to be. And uh, usually that's because in, in, in the... In the washing machine of trying to evaluate other things like, you know, the sacrifice of Jesus, sin, all of those things, what does all that mean? And all the turbulence of, um, you know, thinking that has gone around that and theories that have, have arisen, we tend to then manipulate God to fit whatever has become our favourite theory. Uh, and so, of course, you never find anyone with a strong doctrinal stance that God doesn't support their view of the Bible and their understanding of the cross and Jesus, which is is troublesome to me um, because it means that what we have arrived at then is a very static faith uh, rather than a dynamic faith. And it it also, the the, the line between confidence and arrogance is, is quite a thin line and very easily crossed. Being confident about a belief that is dynamic is one thing but becoming arrogant about a belief that's now become static is another thing and the problem is when our belief becomes static you know what I mean by that that there can be no adjustments no changes this is it God is like this this is what the cross was about this is why Jesus came this is how we're supposed to be this is what the gospel is then that's become static there's no movement and um, my problem with that is that then we have said God is this big. However we define our doctrinal stance, our our practices and performance, this is how big God is, because he fits within all that. And um, in those situations, if, if, if anybody tries to rescue God from our doctrine, uh, we then call them heretics and fight them and get aggressive because they're trying to rescue God from the box that we put him in, which is our, which is our um, static beliefs that we have now come to. And so that led me, um, while we were away this time, 
and the time before when I was down in, in um, Waco. No, I was in Waco this time, was I? Before you came, yeah. Um, it, it led me to talk about a couple of things. One that I shared with you about, about the story about the two guys on the road to Emmaus and how when they finally saw that it was Jesus, he disappeared instantly. And the words I used with you, it disappeared before they could take a photograph. Because you were never supposed to take a photograph of, of how you experienced Jesus because then forever Jesus would be that. And he would do that and he would behave that way and he would be in that place. And, and so then that mental photograph or that doctrinal photograph becomes the idol that we now worship instead of the Jesus who disappeared because he's moving on and wants to take us further. The other thing I said to them is that we, we have become greatly obsessed with grasping the truth that it was for freedom that Christ set us free. And uh, we, we've, we've taught that and introduced that here and, and brought a lot of freedom uh, to people. It's not always beneficial to some of the things about church life that, that I appreciate, but it's still right to teach the freedom. Um, but, but I began to say another thing that, okay, so we all want God to set us free, but how willing are you to set God free? I don't mean the name God free. God space free but because there's not many people thinking about that not many, not many churches preaching about that it's all about how God sets us free but it's never about how do we set God free what what if what if we have put God in a kind of captivity because of our narrowed thinking or because of our upbringing or our background or our learned behaviors uh, and we, we become unwilling to give him the same privilege that we want him to give us. We want the freedom to develop our understanding, our belief, our experience. But don't want to give God the same privilege. And so, um, you know, in, in that line is why I wanted us to talk a little bit about who is God. And I would hope that we leave the conversation this week, next week with a question and not an answer. Because I think the problem is if we leave with an answer, we've actually just backed ourselves into the same problem that we're trying to solve. Now, now, just understand that not having answer doesn't equal uncertainty. It doesn't equal, or should I say, it doesn't equal insecurity. It might equal uncertainty because we're not certain about it, but it doesn't equal insecurity because if we fully grasp this, we actually come into a much more biblical perspective, which is the arena of trust. Okay? And most of the time, we are not trusting the bigness of God. We are we are secure in our certainty about who we have defined God to be. And so our faith gets shaken when we think God might no longer fit within those parameters and within that box. And that's when we become shaken because actually we didn't have a faith in God. What we had was a certainty about a doctrinal stance, a, a, a mental place, a, a, a practice, a position of practice with which we feel secure uh, when actually what we've done is, is we have restricted God and we've now, we've now answered the question that actually we should never, we should never answer uh, because the extent of the height, the depth, the breadth, the width 
of who God is and the love of God is much bigger than you and I can comprehend and we have to get comfortable with that. And that's why I say what comes in there is this issue of trust. We, we have experienced enough to believe and we're willing to express enough to trust that on this journey we see more and more expressions of the bigness and the expansion of God. So who or what is God? Well, let's start at the beginning from my perspectives. I'll, I'll, I'll use quite a bit of Bible today because that's my, that's my thing. Um, so, so when Genesis 1-1, you know, in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. When Genesis 1, 1 makes its opening declaration, are we about to be given a science lesson or are we about to embark on a journey leading all the way to the present which provokes us to enter the conversation that's been going on since the beginning of time of who is God? What's interesting is that controversy strikes us in the very first statement. And um, we immediately have to begin to assess our understanding of God because we have very nicely written in the beginning God, but the actual word is plural. Um, that may have been left out to alleviate confusion because the statement doesn't necessarily mean that there are many other God's divine beings, although one would have to wrestle with that in the context of when all this was written. It doesn't necessarily mean that. But what it is doing is saying you can't restrict it to one aspect of one thing or one understanding of one being. So, so right there in the beginning of Genesis chapter 1, we, 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 we get hit with this controversial thing that in the beginning, gods. What, what do we mean by that? Where does that take us if we're, if we're true and honest to what has been written in the narrative that is pushing us somewhere that, that we would like to dismiss because where it pushes us, we might not be comfortable with now. Out of that thinking uh, has partly come the drive to develop a doctrine known as the Trinity. You may be familiar with the Trinity, or you might be just familiar with the church name of Holy Trinity. Um, if you are familiar or not familiar, Trinity was the doctrine that was developed that says God in three persons, Blessed Trinity, Father, Son, Spirit. Um, and all that goes with that. Now, the interesting thing is that, that, that the Trinity is never ever mentioned or promoted in Scripture. So there is no such a verse that says the Trinity because actually it doesn't exist as a stated, as a stated doctrine. It, it is a developed belief to try and explain the complexity of of God not just having one aspect to who he is and potentially being more than just it. So, of course, we, we, we have gone down the line of, you know, um, Father, Son, Spirit, making the Trinity. H however you want to define that, I have no axe to grind on it. I, I am quite happy with a view of Trinity because it, it gives me aspects 
faces of, images of what God is like. Uh, none of the things are perfect. You know, I, um, I was raised with the thing of I am, well, I am now a grandfather. I am a father and I am a son. So, but I'm the same person. But I'm three different things in three different aspects. Uh, other people have also illustrated it as, as um, uh, you know, if you take water and you freeze it, you have a solid, which is ice. And if you take water and boil it, you have a gas, which is steam. But in essence, it's all water. So, so the, idea of, the idea of the divine being different things but the same is, is not far-fetched. And it has, it has um, within sociology, the grandfather, father, son thing, and, with, and with, um, um, uh, within science, you know, the water, ice, uh, steam illustration, it, it has some mileage that we would have to consider and say, yeah, this, this is a possibility. But I don't think it's the, the whole thing. And then it goes on from there to this inseparably interactive idea of breath. These are what come up right at the beginning. Breath. Uh, which in Hebrew is the word ruach, which is also the word for spirit. You have a similar thing in... in um, in Greek, which the word in Greek is pneuma, which also means spirit in Greek. So we are immediately introduced right in the beginning with this concept of the importance of breath, spirit, ruach, pneuma, breath, spirit. Now, What's also interesting that then causes us some other thinking is that spirit in Hebrew is feminine. So we haven't even left verse 1 of Genesis and we already have some things to wrestle with. We have to wrestle with that it's not God's singular, it's God's plural. So what does that mean? We have to wrestle with we have breath which is spirit, and that is feminine. So what does all that mean from our strongly masculine perspectives on, on what or who we think this person is, who's obviously not just a person, because the whole thing God's is trying to push us away from the person mentality into something bigger and something wider. And, and we also have within that first verse, which I haven't read yet, but I'm going to read those first two verses in a second. We also have the primary necessity of, of all that the gospel is. So you say, well, where does gospel come into Genesis 1, 1 and 2? Well, remember, gospel equals good news. So how does all this equal good news right in the beginning? Well, the good news is that... that that this really does can and will make a difference. And that's got to be the essence of all good news, that whatever it is that we're talking about, this and this can and does and will make a difference. So Genesis 1.1 says this, In the beginning, God 
created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. You could call that chaos. And the Spirit of God, the Ruach of God, the breath of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then what we get from this is words and we get from that life things change so the reason I said at the beginning is this opening declaration given as a science lesson is because it's not and was never intended to and isn't a scientific declaration about the mechanics of how the earth was made it's actually from verse 1 given as a construct to try and help us to join this conversation about God, about who he is, about what he is, about how he works and what happens when he does work, which is that darkness comes to light and nothingness changes to something and chaos turns to order. So we've got the gospel right there. How does it happen? Because of breath and spirit and words. Then God said, keeps cropping up. So let me run through some verses and then we'll come back to some principles there. So in Genesis 2 verse 7 it says, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. So now this principle of breath or spirit is what is transmitted into the man from the beginning and he is alive because breath and spirit have been imparted to him by God and without that breath and spirit he doesn't even live physically. Okay? Genesis 1, uh, 27. So God created man in his own image. So, so God creates man, human, let's call it, because of the problem, let's call it humankind. Because the moment we say man, of course, it's coming from the perspective of male-dominated society. So we begin to call it man and therefore everything in our minds says male. And then that then translates to here that says male. And that translates to everything that God does as a male thing, a dominant male thing. So we talk about king. Whereas what we've got here is an interesting thing because as humankind are made in this image, okay? So something's going on in the process of creation that says, if you look at God, you can see humankind. And if you look at humankind, you can see God. Now, I appreciate we have to bring into that conversation what about our weaknesses, what about our sins, what about our failures, what about our inhumanity, and that's another conversation. But deep within the root of us, where the breath is, where the ruach is, you would have to say we are in his image and he is therefore in our image because if we're made in his image, then he's in our image. We are of the same essence, of the same species of the same kind. So whoever creates something and says it's in my likeness and my image is saying we are of the same species. So what is God like? God is like somebody who would create us 
to be the same species that he is himself. So one could argue, is God more human than we have imagined? And are we more divine than we dared to think? And is there somewhere in that correlation how we begin to understand God's breath, spirit, pneuma? Verse 27, Genesis 1, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So out of God comes both male and female. So therefore, this cannot be just a masculine thing. There has to be other aspects to this other than God being just male and female because in his image he created us and he created male and female. Therefore, as a mirror of who God is, we have to look at that perspective. Now, uh, Genesis 1 verse 31, then God saw everything that he had made and indeed it was very good. So that's the sixth day. So whatever's going on, is not perfect, but it is very good. Okay. Now, that explains a little bit why we say, but we are imperfect. Well, yeah. You were never made perfect. We were made very good, and I think to a great degree we often slip from that status. Again, we could talk about free will and choice and all of that stuff. Uh, but actually in the heart of God, in the essence of God... Um, he looks on the thing and still thinks it's very good. Now, again, the healing process for all that, restoration of all things, another little aspect of this that we're not going into. So I'll go to Genesis 2, verse 24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, I've raised this to you before. Here's, here's the problem. In the Genesis narrative, we are deliberately focused to the point of the one man and the one woman as being representative of the creation. And therefore, if a man has to leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, the question becomes, who was Adam's father? And I think Matthew answers that in Matthew chapter 1 when he runs through the genealogy and runs backward and says who was the son of God was and Adam, who was the son of God. But the question we would also have to ask is, who's Adam's mother? What I'm trying to show you in this is that if we restrict God into a single framework of one type of existence, and we then restrict him to thinking of one kind of genetic makeup we immediately begin to lose the aspects of who God really is. So, so I would propose to you, God is as much mother as he is father. Now, don't go telling all your best Christian friends that because you'll upset them, but I can tell you that. Uh, and that, that he is as much mother as father and he is as much female as he is male because in essence, we're only using human ter terminologies to try and dis describe attributes of the divine, that obviously God is not male and God is not female, he is neither. But for us to understand it, those are the terminologies that help us to understand he has all those attributes. Where do you think the compassion and the nurture of God comes? 
Why is he called in one of the Hebrew names for God the many-breasted one? Because there are these multiple aspects that are being manifested in, in who he is. Okay, let me do another couple of things. Genesis 6 verse 7. We get to the flood, which is an interesting thing to look at. And, you know, we could spend all night for several weeks probably analysing whether this is real, whether it's the development of a story, whether it's the, the Israelite, the Jews, Jewish, well, Hebrew version of, of another story that was borrowed or whatever. In essence, it doesn't matter because the, the, the point is, again, what, what often is happening in Scripture is the point is not, is not the thing that the story is. The point is within the story and it's giving a message. So, you know, my argument on that would be we love to preach the, you know, or have loved in the past to preach things like the flood story. And of course, you know, it's, it's the number one favourite thing for decorating a child's bedroom is, you know, all the animals on the on the ark while never showing any of the dead white bloated bodies floating about bumping against the hull because because the rest of the creation have just been drowned it's actually not a very happy story it's a you know whatever we make of it uh, most of the story is pretty sad you know it's all right saying well you know we, I was raised with the song and only eight were saved and we rejoiced that eight people were saved uh, nobody was saying, how sad does it make you feel that if this story is true, the rest of the population were annihilated and perished? There was, there was no sadness there about the state of humanity, just as is often the case, sadly, in evangelical Christianity. We're just happy that we're saved and stuff the rest of them. If they got drowned, that's their problem. And our equivalent has become not the flood story, but the hell story. And as long as we're in the ark of Jesus and we're saved, you know, bless God, you know, we, just like Noah with the animals, we're all saved and we're floating to glory, bless God, you know, I'll fly away, oh glory, with no compassion that if that story is true, um, then most of the seven billion people in our world are about to be roasted in never-ending punishment in an eternal place called hell. So... So when you look at these perspectives, it makes you have to think, how does that reflect on this, this being, this character, this person that we would define as God? And of course, there's several subjects opened up there. But the reason I wanted to do the um, Genesis thing here was this, that uh, Genesis 6 verse 7 says, So the Lord said, I will destroy man who I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping things, birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So without getting any deeper into that flood story, there are a couple of things that do emerge. And again, you know, we would have to question what's the aspect of the story? Where did the story come from? How real is the story? What does the story really look like and teach us? But within it, there are two things that, that I notice. One is, one is, and, and I like the way the NIV um, puts it is that it grieved the Lord okay so it tells me it tells me several things that it does at least convey from these ancient writings that God has feelings which some people don't like because it's starting to make him more human and what it also says is that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord so God has grace 
something is going on here, which again, you know, we might want to look at that. I know Chris at some point wants to look at what we really mean by grace. But these are emerging things that are flowing out and helping us to get some perspective on, on who or what this person might be. Now, let me jump to Genesis 14. We're now into Abraham's lifetime. And uh, Abraham's out in the, the desert and uh, he's just defeated three kings that have tried to destroy his family and had taken hostages and then he got the hostages back. And, um, and then the story records him meeting a guy called Melchizedek, which I won't write on the board. He meets a guy called Melchizedek, who in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament talks about him having no beginning and no end, that he was the king of uh, Salem and the king of peace. And um, uh, when Abraham meets this guy who comes out of nowhere, and he wasn't a real character, um, Abraham pays a tenth of all his spoils to him, and, and the man blesses, blesses Abraham and then we don't hear any more about this Melchizedek. Now, there are other perspectives from other stories that people would say it could be this, could be that, could be the other. My point is this, that throughout this journey and people's attempt to reflect on this journey, there have been occasions where people would absolutely say that they met God. And to all intents and purposes of the Bible narrative, um, it would appear that Abraham, if this story is true, met a manifestation of God in a human form. Now, again, I have to say something might shock some of you. Whether that was literal or perceived actually doesn't matter. What matters is that in Abraham's understanding, he had an encounter with the divine. He met the divine and such was the impact of that encounter with the divine on his life that it made him want to give, right? Which is probably a good, it's probably a good proof that you met the divine if you come out of it wanting to give. If you come out of it bitter, judgmental, condemning, thinking you've got the big word to put everybody else right, I don't know who you met, but you didn't meet, you didn't meet, meet this here. So the fact that the first thing Abraham wanted to do was give, pay tithes, give, would say to me, whether it was real or imagined or not, is not the point. What matters is that his encounter caused him to begin to manifest one of the greatest attributes of God, which is to give, right? God so loved the world that he gave. You've got this theme coming up all the way through. So no matter how much Hebrew thinking and this little nation trying to be the big guy on, on the block and threaten and intimidate all their enemies because that's what you did in those days. And if you were a small tribe, but you had a big God, you were probably going to survive. If you were a small tribe with a small God, you weren't going to make it very far. And the problem is that when other nations came in, like the Babylonians and the Assyrians, who felt not only did they have a bigger army, but they had a bigger God, we then find Israel going into captivity. So it's, it's, uh, the whole story is a mixture of this, of this nation and these people trying to find their identity and in the midst of it, trying to somehow experience or understand who this character is that brings us these writings that are supposed to help us then to get some kind of insight into, into what this God is about and what this God does. So, so, so Abraham gives when he's met 
this God. Uh, okay, let me jump now to Genesis 15, verse 5, the story that we've talked about before, which is my favourite one for talking about covenant, where you know God says to Abraham, take these animals and split the carcasses, and you walk through the blood in the middle, and we said God made a covenant with Abraham that day, of which Abraham became a beneficiary. But just before he did all that, uh, it says that God brought Abraham outside and said, look now towards heaven and count the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to them, so shall your descendants be. Now, again here, the reason I'm dropping in on some of these things, which are not all of us, is, is to show you that in the emerging conversation, we get little insights into, into who or what this, this being, person, essence might be. And uh, I find it fascinating how much you miss when you have put God within a certain frame of understanding. So when God says your descendants will be as the stars of the heavens, did he mean you'll just have as many descendants as there are stars in the heaven? Or did he mean that not only that, but your descendants will be as the stars in the heavens, that somehow in the process of this, as we become one with our creator, we become one with the cosmos, we become one with everything that exists cosmically, with what we can see in the immenseness of the stars, that we actually were being told, if you understand this, you actually begin to become one with the whole thing. Not just this limited existence of condemnation that somehow needs God not to be mad with himself and to kill himself, to stop himself being mad with himself about the people he created in the first place, that little world that, that really only exists like within the dock of a courtroom, you know, you're forever in the dock, that's your world. You can't go outside of here because you're condemned. Rather than being in the wide open spaces of what he says, that look, it's not just that the number of the stars is what is going to be counted as your as your descendants, but you, your descendants will be as the stars. There is, a, there is a promise that goes beyond, stretches our mind outside of the limitations of this guy just in the middle of the desert in his tent, wondering where all this goes. Okay, so then we move on to another little example, which is Genesis 32 and, and 24. We've now got from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. We've now arrived at Jacob which I haven't got time for any of you not familiar with the whole story. You can go read it around those chapters of 32. <coughs> but it was the a situation where Jacob having, I'll put inverted commas, cheated his brother out of the birthright. But one could say he wanted something that was more than just a futile existence, which, which is a God thing. And again, the conversation or debate about how he got there, you know, we could show some flaws and difficulties, but much like us in our grasping for, for what we want to find. But then he has this situation where he's alone and afraid and, and he's about to meet his brother who he cheated out of his inheritance. And he's absolutely terrified. But in the middle of the night on his own in the desert, it says a man came and wrestled with him. 
So the question would be, was he imagining it? Did he make it, make it up? Is this a story constructed by the Hebrews just to flesh out their existence? Or, or, or is this narrative part of that whole insert that's trying to help us to get some understanding of, of who and what this person is? So, so if, if this account is correct, then a physical being, it would appear turns up in the middle of the night and starts to fight with Jacob because trying to show to Jacob that the real fight is within himself and so it's Jacob's name that gets changed from Jacob to Israel, Prince with God. Um, but it's this issue again of something changes in him because he has an encounter but he doesn't have an encounter with an unseen, unreal, untouchable, unrelatable thing. He has an encounter with something with which he can relate or someone that he can touch that brings home to him what the possibilities are for his own life. So, so we've, got, we've got this showing up as this Melchizedek, who's this priest-king person. We've got him showing up as a wrestler, WWF, in the middle of the desert. Um, and then, of course, we move on to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, verse 2, and he's having a conversation with a bush. You know, and the bush is on fire, but the bush is not, is not disappearing. Which you would have to say, in, in, in essence, is a, is a sign of madness. You know, he's been out in the sun too long looking after the sheep. He's now talking to bushes. Um, or, this being shows up in physical things that are so real and so, so imposing that one, one is drawn to stop and interact with what it is that is happening. And, you know, the story of Moses would suggest that, that he heard a voice in the bush, which we would say, you know, the voice of God within the bush. But get the picture, he's talking to a bush in the desert. He's having a conversation with the bush. And the bush is talking back. But, but in that conversation, we get one of the strongest um, revelations about the nature of this being that, that we have anywhere in Scripture. And we actually referred to it on, on, uh, on Sunday. Because this is the point where Moses says to God, talking to the bus, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they say to me, What is his name? What shall I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, this is what you've got to tell the children of Israel. I am has sent you. So we've now got this other weird thing of this declaration of the I am. This, 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 this sense within the verbiage that is spoken of, you cannot get more contained within or more immediate to the moment than the terminology that is used to describe to describe God as I am. Why this is important is because in all the ways that we've seen God turning up, now what it's saying is that God is not somewhere else. God is not somewhere else. Because I am is, I am, it's not I will be, it's not I was. 
It's not I am. So we have in the context of time and location, we are being drawn into the conversation to say, God is not in the future, God is not in the past, God is in this moment. That God is not somewhere else, God is here. So if he is here and in this moment and he is breath and I am breathing, then something of this divine being essence is here in me, with me, part of me. Forget any prayers or invitations or whatever because the moment an invitation comes, it's saying he is not here and he has to come here. And I was raised with a theology that basically was screaming out, God is not here, God is not with us, he is not I am. And all our preaching said, God is here, God is with us, he is I am. But our prayers gave it away. Oh Lord, if only you would come. Okay, so where is he? Not here. If only you would fill us. He's not in us. If only you would be present. He's not I am. So there was a conflict between our preaching and our praying. And I would say that we were more at one with our praying than we were with our preaching in actually feeling and believing that God was somewhere and needed to come. That God was away and needed to be brought near. But if we begin to understand what all this is saying, we're saying, look, the, the sense of him being here is not always, is not always experienced or st- or, or understood in exactly the same way. It might be a Melchizedek. It might be a. It might be a WWF wrestler. It might be. It might be a bush. But it also might be an inspiration. It might be a revelation. It might be a peace. It might be whatever. It might be the breath that you breathe, and suddenly you realise. God is in me. This is all painting a picture of of a God who is not distant and not gone, but is present and is here and is with us and who is as close as the breath that we breathe because he breathed into them the breath of life and they came alive. Okay, so just a couple more of these and then then some questions just to to kind of focus it towards where I want to finish tonight. So... Let's go then into the New Testament, Acts chapter 9. We have this guy called Paul, whose name was Saul, who had been persecuting the church because he was a religious zealot of the highest order who thought he was doing God a favour by killing Jesus' followers. And then, of course, what happens to him, he's on the way to Damascus and says, suddenly a light shone around him from heaven and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting and it's hard for you to kick against the goads, pricks, whatever. Those things mean different things these days, don't they? But I've met plenty of both. Um, <clears throat> And trembling, he said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And um, uh, so, so the, the transformation of the guy we know as Paul the Apostle, who's had such an influence on the world. And I would say again, you know, give Paul a break, because if you said to me now, in 2,000 years, 
everything that you say in this place, everything you write on the whiteboard, everything you put in your notes is going to be analysed and examined and you are going to be measured on what you wrote at that time, in that moment, to those people. I would say I'm writing nothing, I'm saying nothing. So give Paul a break because, you know, he... he the, Bless him, he, he submitted his stuff in the moment and we took hold of it and made, made things of it that was never been made, meant to be made of it, certainly in the context of taking it out of context and out of position. And of course, uh, in some ways, that's been used to do much damage to this good news as it has provided material for it. You know, And some people would say that um, evangelicalism is, is basically Paul's fault and not that I'm totally against evangelicalism but I think evangelicalism has its problems in that we've narrowed God and salvation and the good news and everything into a very small parameter. So in this one he, he, he gets knocked off his donkey and he hears a voice. It's, an, it's another experience, it's another encounter uh, and then of course just, just these couple more, one that's a great favourite, 1 John, um, uh, 1 John 1 verse 5. So we're into John's um, epistles at the end. This is the message that we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness of all. So God is light. Okay, well how's that work? So is he a person, or is he light? I think he's a bush. Or a bush. Or a bush. Uh, there was, of course, there's the pathetic dad joke about, about Moses getting to heaven and God wanting to introduce him to the then President of the United States, and he refuses the offer because he said, the last time I talked to a bush, look at the trouble it got me into. <laughs> so John also says in, um, in uh, John 4, verse 8, he who does not love God does not know God, for God is love. So which is he? Is he light? Or is he love? Or is he male? Or is he, what is he? Okay, confuse the matter further. It, he, you have to use some terminology. He, him, it. Shim. John 4, the Gospel of John 4, 24. God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Now, it doesn't specifically say this, but we could also, we could also put in there by implication, there's no specific verse that says this, but there are verses that point to this, that God is life. So the reason I'm showing you this is because the question becomes then, is God a person, is God an essence? Well, then we get another confusion because... Um, oh, sorry, I'm, I'm down, I'll write it over here. He is also something called the Word. Because John also wrote in his kindness of saying God is light, God is love, God is life, God is spirit, God is Word. Thank you, John. 
In the beginning, John chapter 1 verse 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him, nothing was made that was made. So we know that the essence of this person who's made flesh is the very person who was in the beginning, who did the creation thing. And we know that manifestation uh, as Jesus. Word made flesh. But the issue is, if we only stick with word made flesh, we have what? Chris has a wonderful word. We have an anthropomorphic God, which means that we have made God only in the form of a human. And we have often seen that model of God, we imagine him in human form, which, which he probably is and he isn't. The word is made flesh, we see it in the form of Jesus, but he's also light, he's also love, he's also spirit, he's also life, he's also word. Now, what is word? Word is something that is formed when you exhale breath. Without the exhalation of breath, you cannot speak words. So we're right back to the very beginning, where ruach and spirit, because God said... Let there be. So out of God is coming breath. The word is the breath of God. Spirit is the same thing. Love comes out of these things. Light comes out of these things. God said, let there be light. It's all coming from the same source and essence, but it's not just one thing that you can button down and paint an image of and say, this is God. So the word became flesh and dwelt among us, it says, and we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father. And it's all full of grace. So whatever all this is, what it's full of, is not judgments. It's full of grace and truth. And remember we said that truth is not like, you know, people have said, oh, you know, truth is being honest about people that balances out the grace. The word there is nearer to the word that we use for authentic, for hallmarking silver. It's authentic grace. It's full of authentic grace. Is what all this is full of right from the beginning, which we've talked about before, that John 1 does, but we haven't got time to cover tonight. So I said all that simply to give you some background to the question, so how are we supposed to perceive God? That becomes the question, how are we supposed to perceive God? And is how we describe him important or is how we experience him and understand him more important? See, most of the time in the context of our kind of church environment, how we describe him as being the important thing. And um, what we have done is we, particularly in our stream of thinking, we don't, we don't have icons and idols uh, physically. But we have them mentally and emotionally and spiritually and doctrinally. We've got all those icons because... You have to believe it this way, you have to see it that way, and we don't, have a, we, don't have a, we don't have a statue to pray to, but we say you have to pray these words in this way and believe in this way and do that and do the other. Why? Because God is not here, he's somewhere else. Because God is not in this moment, he is outside this moment. 
And that's where then our ultimately becomes the only way we become one with him is when we die and are translated from here and go to heaven. Says God is not really here, he's somewhere else. He's not in this moment, he's in some other time. But that is not consistent with the real essence and message of scripture from the beginning about how present God is and how with us he exists. So, so how we experience him and understand him is actually more important than how we describe him, which gives space for people who have extraordinary experiences of encountering the divine. Instead of having judgments and saying that doesn't tick the boxes that we have, we can say that's wonderful. And we're grateful that this, this God has shown himself and manifested himself. He turned up in your tent, he turned up in your desert, he was in that bush that you talked to. And that gives me space to say, okay, so the Cherokee Indian, out in the Holy Lands, does God speak through his bush? Because see, what we do, we begin to superimpose upon the story all the all the information we have now to say, oh, you know, God couldn't do that to anybody but this person and he would only do it for this person because he's from this nation and he's this type of person. And what we've done then is we've taken God and said, you can only do it this way to these people in this form. So in case you haven't caught it, newsflash, nowhere does it say God is white, male, six foot four, evangelical, Christian with a white beard. Now, I'm not being anti-evangelical in that. The reason I use that terminology a lot is because that's been my field of experience for all of my life and where many of my questions have arisen from. So if you've no idea what that is, don't worry about it. But some of you do. So are we guilty of making God and I'll write your word up here just because it's a clever word. And... Throw, pour, more, is it P-H? Thick. It's a great word, that. Remember that. Baffle your friends with it. Impress you. Impress people. Anthropomorphic means that he is in human form. We can only perceive him in a, in a human context. So the question is, are we guilty of making God an anthropomorphic being? Would we be in error preventing him from being seen in that way? Because that becomes the other challenge. Oh, oh well, you know, if, if, if I don't present God as male, if I don't present God as a man, if I don't present God as a man on the throne, if I don't present God in a certain way, should I feel guilty about that? Well, I'm saying to you, no, you shouldn't. Because God was being experienced in many ways by these people throughout history that they were trying to convey to us God was there. God was in that moment. And it was amazing. I won't give any more illustrations because we'll, we'll run out of time. So that raises the matter. Is God a he, a she... Is God a being at all? Is God a substance or an essence? But the bigger question, does it matter? 
Now, I would say at this point in my life, it doesn't matter. Because if he is light, love, spirit, life, and also word, Jesus, breath, and mother and father, and male and female, then it, it, it doesn't matter. What, what matters is that I get the full released essence of all that he is so he can show up and manifest and present himself in any environment, in every situation. And I know that it's, quote, God, not because he turned up as the white-bearded male, but because the attributes that belong to him begin to be seen and experienced and I can flow into those attributes and as I receive that, I receive fully what is the, the life of God. And I'll, I'll give you some, just a bit practical comment on that, just, just one moment. So are we restricted by how we would define each of these categories? That becomes a question tonight. Are we restricted by how we define each of these categories or can we allow them to flow together and blend together so that we don't restrict this amazing divine creator into something that looks more human than it does godlike? So what about how any given person, people, tribe need to see in order to facilitate some understanding? My question would be, does, does this essence being whoever, whatever, who we treat with the greatest honour and respect because he's the creator and father, does he actually show up and manifest himself in ways that we within a culture, within a tribe, within a people, within a space in time can actually best appreciate and ascertain the nature of who he really is? That would be another question. And I would say if he's full of grace, then yes, that's how he would turn up. That's how he would show himself because he cares about people. He's not looking for to promote who he is so much as he is for you to find who you are because that's the best way that you'll know who he is. So why are we so intent on confining him within a fully defined form, upholding a judicial process with the Bible as the constitutional document? Because that's what we have tended to do. And of course, even when we talk about God as judge, how do you think about God as judge? You think about God kind of, we don't say it, but he's obviously got one of those white wigs on and he obviously sits behind, the, he's not with us. You know, he sits in the judge's seat above us, judging us. All of these images have distorted our ability and willingness to fully embrace who God is. And even the matter of, you know, talks about the Holy Spirit being our paraclete, not our parakeet, our paraclete. A paraclete was really your legal representative, like your lawyer who would stand with you. But of course, the problem is, if you take that without some kind of measurement, what we're saying is God and, and the Holy Spirit, who is now our defence attorney, are two separate people. So now they're no longer one because one is trying to help us and one is trying to condemn us. So we've not thought some of these things through as to what that really means in the context of understanding God. So how might created things help our understanding of the creator? Because that's a, a, a big thing for me at the moment. 
and our interaction with our participation of the divine. So, so, so what, what, is, what is life and nature and the way things are telling me about what God is like? Um, I think sometimes we were so bound to think that only really the Bible could tell us what God was like that we miss looking at, well, if we look at what God has done, it's like an artist. Best way to understand an artist is look at their paintings. And then you'll get a good, a good understanding of kind of what's going on in them, what makes them tick, what makes them work. Well, a good way to understand God is to look at creation and look at the universe and look at how things work and you get more of an understanding then, potentially, of models of God. Listen to what Psalm 19 says. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utter speech. Or in other words, each day that comes, what is happening and all around us is telling us something. It says, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. So in every nation, among every culture, among every people, it's saying there's not a single place where the heavens are not declaring the glory of God. Where a full revelation of all that he, it, this thing, whatever terminology you use, taking into all these things, is actually seen through his handiwork. It says, their line has gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of a chamber. This is poetic, of course. And rejoicing like a strong man to run its race. It's rising from one end of heaven and its circuit to the other end. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. So here's where I wanted to bring this through just to close my little contribution tonight if this is true the very universe itself has something to tell us and this has not been easy for me because for me the universe was astrology um, you know it was it was fortune telling um, and all of those things so it was like yeah we acknowledge oh, isn't God wonderful in the creation he's given but we never stopped to look at at science and biology and all of these disciplines that might actually tell us something about if we see how all this stuff works a little bit, we might understand what's in the heart of the creator. And by understanding what's in the heart of creator, we know what the creator is like. And then we know what's been imparted into us as one flesh. So we have to become much more conscious of the world around us if we're ever going to fully understand the nature of this creation. There's, there's more we could we could say about that. It's also interesting that the universe has stuff that is not stuff as we understand stuff to be, which is fascinating. We some of you get your heads around that. Because once you start to look outside of our limited parameters, there are perspectives and concepts and contexts that just stretch you beyond your ability to comprehend. I rather think that's what's supposed to happen in our understanding of who this being, this force, this essence, this creator, this Abba, this Father is. That's what's supposed to happen. Wonder and amazement that we can't reach to where this thing fully goes. And I think, you know, again, we could talk about 
you know, how the more we know the universe goes that way, and then when we come the other way, the more we look the other way, we just get smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller, uh, and, and still keep finding that which we can't explain, which we can't understand. So if nature itself is like that, how can we confine God within a doctrinal position that says, this is what God is like, this is how God acts, this is how everything works, and if you do this, this and this. Nature is not like that. Creation is not like that. It's bigger than that. Now, we shouldn't lose faith because of that. We should have an explosion of faith because of that to say, do you know what? I figure God's probably got this covered and, and that I am not separate from it. I am part of it. So, so here's my last little bit on that. So if we just take one aspect of this thought to finish and we'll say a little bit about this on, on, on Sunday. This idea right from the beginning of breath, ruach in the Hebrew, pneuma in the Greek. Breath and spirit is a synonymous word. Breath is spirit and spirit is breath. So when, when God breathed into Adam, his spirit went into Adam. When God said, let there be, his spirit became part of whatever was being. It's a very interesting thing if you think about it. If you hold your breath and then try to speak. It's an impossibility. You cannot hold your breath and speak. In order to speak, you have to breathe. That's why there is so much power in words. That's why the things that affect our life the most for all of us throughout our whole time on this earth will be words. Because there is spirit in words. Breath is, a word can't be spoken without breath. And in those words there is spirit. Now, of course, the challenge would be how creative can I be and in what areas if I learn to use that breath and those words in a particular way in my declarations in my confessions in the things that I say is this is there some health is there some hope is there some healing that comes when words are spoken we would have to weigh this because if these principles are true then some of these things there is more power in them than we actually realize but we often only realize the destructive power of these things rather than the constructive creative power of these things the whole message in there even even the Hebrew name for God, which they wrote as, in English, it would be YHWH. The only way you can speak that because of what it is, it's the sound of breathing. It's the sound of breath. Because that's the essence of who God is. And so if you think about the miracle of breathing, this, I wanted to bring you just to this point. This is my closing point. Biologically, we function in two ways. We have what are called involuntary actions and we have what are called voluntary actions. So how many of you are thinking about breathing right now? Now you're thinking about breathing now because I said about thinking about breathing. But how many of you know if you don't think about breathing, which you don't, you breathe all the time? How many of you try and make your heart beat? Or your kidneys filter out toxins. Or your liver to purify your blood. 
that's called involuntary. In other words, that has been built into you as a human being, as humankind, you have had built into you involuntary actions, things that work because they are part of who you are. And we sometimes forget that because we talk as though on a spiritual plane that everything has to be voluntary. My question would be how much of God's interaction with the world in his love and his light and his kindness is an involuntary impartation into the humankind that works anyway because God made it involuntary. Now, there are other things that are voluntary. You know, I choose to move my arm. It doesn't do that all the time. <coughs> there are things that we do voluntarily. This, this is how I would just, just put that as I kind of summarise this. I find it fascinating that that which sustains life is involuntary. So everything that's sustaining your life right now is involuntary. It just happens because it happens. My question would then be, if that's what God has built into humankind, how much of the whole process of our, what, what for want of a better term, our spiritual side is an involuntary thing that we have thought we have to strive to achieve or somehow make part of us, but actually just like your breathing and your heartbeat, God has involuntarily built that into you because he wants his life deep within you that you don't decide whether you have it or don't have it he decides whether you have it and having decided to breathe his breath into us we have this life within us so that which sustains life is involuntary that which enhances life is voluntary so there are things that we choose but the things we choose are an enhancement of what is already functioning going on within us. So, so here's where that brings us. If, if this is important in understanding God from the beginning, when I breathe, I breathe the air that is all around me becomes within me and it's outside of me, it's inside of me, it's outside of me, it's all around me. I am part of it and it is part of me. I am one with it and it is one with me. I don't have a designed little bit that says this is ants air that you must not touch because that's his little... I am simply in the ocean of this big thing of which it moves in and out of me just constantly. So it is in me and it is outside of me. It is around me and it consumes me and I am part of it. And right there in the beginning it says this is the essence of the existence of God in and with humanity that we are a part of. So we must forsake the idea that God is somewhere else. And we must cut the ridiculous that only ever trivialises the divine and bring ourselves to the place of trust that God is not somewhere else. He is not in some other time, but he is here and it's now. And the sense of that nowness and that presence is not something just here it's something that is within me and part of me and flowing through me that I become one I am more one with the divine than I would dare to imagine the issue is not 
the involuntary. The issue then is the voluntary because one sustains the life that we have been given. The other one simply enhances that life by allowing us to come to a greater awareness of all that is ours and all that is available to us because of this wonderful connection with this thing that we have reduced to a man in a white beard on a throne or in the judge's seat judging over humanity who then can't make up his mind whether he's a spirit or can't make up his mind whether he's a person in Jesus when actually is all of those things as needed whenever for the fact that his goodness can flow through us and that as he gives and flows into us and we understand that then we start to give out all that is of that essence and all of that goodness so I think I've said enough and uh, we'll call it a night how's that yeah Chris said there's another one which is yeah I mean you could put a lot on there you know wisdom you could just put a list of these things that what it what it's really driving you away from is this clever word, this anthropomorphic limitation that we have placed upon the divine that says not only is he all of these things, but but the universe is full of all of these things. And yeah, so you know, again you're back to where does Jesus fit in this? Well, it depends. See, for me, I'll tell you a little bit difference between Chris and I, just as we, we let you go. Um, I relate best to a being. I can understand and connect with this the more that I have a being. So, so Jesus as a person and the Father as a person helps me to grasp it. There's nothing wrong with that. In Chris's experience, because of what people have represented in the context of how she would then view God... It's better for her, for God not to be a person, for God to be an essence or God to be a spirit or a presence but not a person. So there isn't a right or wrong in this any more than, you know, is he a WWF wrestler, is he a bush, is he a priest king, you know, um, is he a voice? All of these things, it's not a right or wrong, it's the issue of what any of us must be able to do is release God to be who he is in his fullness but he's happy for us to relate to that fullness in whatever dimension and way helps us best to connect because it's not a right or wrong exam you've got to do it in this way he just wants us to find within there something that gives us the insight where we can begin to grasp the height the depth the breadth and the length of of the love that he's God and the the essence that he's God and the being that he's God so that we ultimately realise that we're not just a number, but we actually are the descendants are like the stars. That's our significance in the world and in the universe. So bless you, love you, thanks for being here, and uh, hopefully Chris will pick up a bit more next week. But maybe not, I won't put pressure on